Good morning, church. Good to be with you. How's everyone doing? Enjoying the extra hour of sleep we got today? Or if you have kids, just means you're up, up an hour earlier because their schedule doesn't change. If you haven't already, let me invite you to open to 2 Samuel 19, the passage our friend Cole just read for us. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love to gift you with one. We have Gospel Transformation Bibles here in the room off to my left. Call this the cafe room. And now the room that is marinating and simmering with beautiful smells of crockpots for the potluck. Uh, we have, yeah, if you don't own a Bible, please take one as a gift to you. We'd love to gift you with a copy of God's Word. We think God's Word is a great gift to us. Amen? Amen. And we have the privilege of opening it and studying it each week. So uh, think with me on this. Have you ever had this experience? You, you go somewhere where you used to go, and it wasn't what it was. You ever had this experience? Sports fans, this can happen all the time. As there seems to be like a cusp year for some, where they go from just being an MVP to like a LVP, <laughs> least valuable player. Seahawks fans might remember a guy named Sean Alexander was a star MVP. He was on the cover of Madden Football, and the next year he just dropped off, and I don't, I don't know what happened to him. Madden yeah, Madden curse. <laughs> For me, there was, a, there was an experience like this. My, my mom would take us to a McDonald's. McDonald's was a big treat for us. And there was this McDonald's, amen, yes, thank you, Thomas. There was, this, there was this McDonald's in White Center that had one of those play structures and one of those ball pits. You know, like knowing what I know now and, and being married to someone who's a little more uh, conscious of germs than I am, you'd find like, you know, year old fries and like a sock, you know, and just like an old toy in the bottom of this ball pit. Well, we loved going there and playing. It was a great time. And I remember going back there in high school after I hadn't been there for a while and just thinking, wow, this thing is small. Look at how little that ball pit is. And as a kid, you know, it was just like this, it was just magical, like a wonderland. There's a level of sadness to that when you remember something that at once, you know, it, it, it wasn't what it once was. And I think what happens in our story today is something that's similar to that. As David comes, the return of the king, he's, he's coming back into Jerusalem to be king. The kingdom is not what it once was. We see evidences of the, the kingdom is starting to splinter and, and, and you'll see how it becomes actually divided into two kingdoms between the north and the south. David is not the king he once was. The kingdom is not what it once was. It's the family division, the fighting, there's arguing, there's jealousy, there's harshness. It's not setting up a good resolve and everything ended happily ever after. That's not, that's not where we're going with Samuel. David was conspired against as king. He was usurped by his own son, Absalom. And while Absalom was stealing away the hearts of the people of Israel... David was sitting in the palace and Absalom was trending, if you will, in followers. He was just gaining followers left and right. David wasn't. And Absalom overthrows his father and David has to flee. But, but we see that there is still a, a loyal base to David and there's a civil war that breaks out. Those who are loyal to David, those who are loyal to Absalom. And even though David has his, and told his commanders, including a guy named Joab, hey, Deal gently with my son Absalom for my sake. Deal gently with him. Doesn't listen. 
it's told that Absalom is riding his mule underneath a low branch and he gets hung up in the branch as the mule goes through and he's hanging there and he's told, this is told to Joab and Joab goes and kills Absalom. And they blow the ram's horn, the battle is over and the civil war between father and son has ended. Absalom has been killed, the rebellion is over. And David, as a loving father, he gets the news of his son Absalom dying and he says this, he cries out, if only I had died instead of you. At the heart of the father, not wanting harm upon his own son, wishing that he would have died in his place. And we saw last week how this pointed forward to the heart of the father of God to exchange himself for traitorous rebels like you and me. So Samuel 19 picks up at the end of that where David is crying out for his son. And we'll see seven scenes in the story. It's a long passage, right? Cole did a great job reading through those 43 verses. We see seven scenes in these 43 verses. The first is David grieving. And then we'll see the people of Israel arguing about why they should bring David back. And then we'll see David sending word to Judah about being restored as king. Then we'll see three characters that David interacts with, a guy named Shimei, who asked for mercy, a guy named Mephibosheth, who meets with David, David wanting to bless a guy named Barzillai, and then ending with the men of Judah and the men of Israel arguing. Seven scenes. And the chapter's book ended with grief and arguing and arguing. <laughs> All right, so let's look at the story, shall we? It's told Joab, behold, David is mourning and weeping for his son Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face and the king cried with a loud voice, Oh, my son, Absalom. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Now, normally when the, your enemies were defeated, when traitors and rebellion was squashed, there would be a victory parade, a victory procession. And it would be a time of celebration, laughter, and joy. And in this instance, because of how David is responding, the people are like ashamed. They're stealing into the city like they had just been defeated. It's not a, a, a normal kind of thing. They're moving stealthily back home like they don't want to be seen. This is kind of the opposite of a procession, parade. It's like, well, I, yeah, let me just go in the back here and I don't want to be seen. And David here is in his difficult spot. He, he's grieving the loss of his son, but he's also setting the tone for his people in mourning and grieving. The commander of David's army, Joab, he's a kind of a suspect character, questionable morality, but he's been loyal to David and loyal to the kingdom. He hears about this and he confronts David and he has some dramatic phrases and responses. I think he's trying to wake up David. He comes into the house and he says, you have today covered with shame the faces of your servants who have died this day, saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you and you hate those who love you. Now, the word hate and love here can also mean like being loyal and disloyal. So you're loyal to those who are disloyal to you. You're disloyal to those who are loyal to you. But it could just be Joab is using some pretty strong language here to try to prove a point. For you made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead, then you'd be pleased. <laughs> like if Absalom was alive and all your army was dead, would you be grieved like this? Now therefore arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants, for I swear 
by the Lord. If you do not go out, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. So in other words, stop it. Stop it, David. Stop grieving. What's going to happen to you because of this is going to be worse than all that's happened to you in your life until now. Talk about dramatic. <laughs> but it, it, it works. David stops it. Right? And while it's understandable for David to be in grief for his son, he, he's also setting the pace. He's influencing his soldiers. He's setting the tone. He said, you haven't celebrated, you haven't thanked, you haven't treated those who saved your life rightly. You treated them with contempt. And I think this is what grief can do to us. It can turn your focus simply resting on yourself. You guys experience this? Our grief, our loss, our depression, it can fuel the natural self-centeredness that is already present in our hearts and get us self-absorbed. It can cause us to not serve others because we're so focused on our own pain. I've seen husbands and wives walk away in withdrawal and neglect of their families because of their own pain. Suffering and pain and grief is unavoidable in this present world. It doesn't mean God's angry with us. It doesn't mean he hates us. It doesn't mean that he's done with us. It means that we live in a fallen world, right? It means we live in a world that doesn't function as God has intended it to function. The world of hate, pain, and suffering is in need of renewal. So suffering is not an opportunity for us to become absorbed in our own pain and feelings. It's an opportunity for God calling us to trust God calling us to grow in our anticipation and longing for the renewal that will come in the world that is. Cause us to have, give us hope that this world is not all that there is and have greater trust and dependence upon Christ and what he will do. Wallowing and full vent to our self-pity can prevent us from loving God and loving others well. Can prevent us from listening. A guy named Paul David Tripp, he wrote this book called Suffering. Gospel hope in life doesn't make sense. He says it like this. Left unchecked, discouragement will become our ears and eyes, determining what you see and hear and how you see it and hear it. Unchecked, it will become the master of your emotions and the ruler of your choices and actions. Unchecked, discouragement will rob you of your hope and motivation. It will steal your reason for doing good things. It will rob you of your ability to trust. It will make you closed, self-protective, and easily overwhelmed. Discouragement will sap you of your strength and courage. It will cause you to see negative when nothing is negative and miss the positive that is right in front of you. If given room, discouragement will tell you lies that have the power to destroy your life. Discouragement is natural for someone who is suffering, but it makes a very, very bad master. David's so wrapped up in his own pain, his own grief, that he's not concerned. He doesn't care about how it's affecting his troops and his men. But David hears the words of Joab. He gets up, he goes, and he takes a seat in the gate. And there's ascension with this, this gesture signifies kind of a return to normalcy. Kings and elders would sit in the gate and administer justice. And all the people come before the king. We see this opening scene close. David's been grieving for his son, but Joab confronts him and he sits at the gate. And then we shift to all the people of Israel. We're told in verse nine, all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel saying, the king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines. And now he's fled out of the, out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, who we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? So they're kind of having this realization. Hey, when David was king, he defeated the enemies. 
He defeated the Philistines. I mean, he, he fled when Absalom took over, but now Absalom's dead. So why don't we bring David back? And it's, it's almost as if the, the people, the tribes of Israel are challenging the elders. They're using this language. Why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? What are we doing here? <laughs> Absalom's dead. David was a good king. Why don't we bring him back? And David seemingly uses this support from Israel to call to action his own tribe of Judah. Right? There's 12 tribes of Israel. Judah is one of those tribes. And Judah is, is the tribe that David is from. So he's calling, he's using this, this, all the other tribes wanting to invite David to be king to motivate them to do something. So the scene switches again to David sending word to Judah about why have you not sent me up? Verse 11, the king sent messengers to Zadok and Abiathar the priest. Say to the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to bring back the king to his house? Right, all the other tribes of Israel, they're talking about this. You are my brothers, you are my bone, you're my flesh, then why should you be the last to bring back the king? And then he says, say to Amasa, are you not bone of my flesh? God do to me and more also if you are not commander of my army from now on in the place of Joab. Now, this could be a political, political move that David's making. Amasa was the commander of Absalom's armies. So he was the commander of the enemy of David. And David is, is now saying, no, you're going to be my commander. Is saying, you don't have to worry about those who are against me, that I'm going to be some sort of retribution or retaliation. Let's, let's pursue unity. I'm not going to pursue retribution. I want to pursue reconciliation. But it could also be, David's not too happy with Joab. <laughs> Joab has not listened to his orders about Absalom, and he's doing this as a way to demote Joab and punish him. He's not too happy with him. And as David crosses the river, Jordan, we see this guy named Shimei again. You guys remember Shimei? Shimei was the guy who cursed David when he was fleeing Jerusalem when, when Absalom had usurped the throne. He had kind of kicked dust upon him. He was throwing rocks at him. He was insulting David, calling him an, a worthless man. And he hurries to come down to meet the men of Judah and King David. And he falls down before the king. And he says in verse nine, let not my Lord hold me guilty. I'll remember how your servant did wrong on the day my Lord, the king left Jerusalem. Do not take it to heart, right? So it's like, yeah, easy for you to say. You jump. <laughs> for your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day the first of the house of Joseph to come down to meet my Lord, the king. Now the narrator here doesn't tell us, was Shimei being honest? Was this genuine grief and sorrow that he had dishonored David? Or was just this, oh, shoot. How I wanted it to turn out didn't happen. <laughs> Absalom is defeated. And now I'm remembering what I said to David and he's king. So I want to try to save my head, save my life. And remember our boy, Abishai, the guy when Shimei the first time was flinging dust at him and throwing rocks at him, he said, hey, David, why are you letting this dead dog talk to you like this? Shall I go take off his head? Right, and, and Abishai is consistent here. Look what he says. Let me go over and take off his head. Let me remove his head. Right, he says, shall Shimei be put to death for this? Because he has cursed the Lord's anointed. He still wants to kill the guy. <laughs> Uh, and David says, no one will be put to death this day. He doesn't want to return as king with, with more murder and death. Death is not to mar his day. He doesn't want retribution. He wants to pursue unity. And he tells Shimei, you shall not die. It's the first character we're introduced with. Then we're introduced to this second character that David interacts with, a guy named Mephibosheth. 
Mephibosheth comes out as a guy who is demonstrating his loyalty to David. Has he ever done this? Just let your feet go uncleaned? Toenails are going like crazy? You haven't trimmed your beard? You haven't washed your clothes? The sign of grief? He says, I, I haven't washed my clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. And, and when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? And he answered, my Lord, my servant, deceive me. For your servant said to him, I will saddle my, my donkey for my... <laughs> I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go with the king for your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my Lord, the king. But my Lord, the king is like an angel of God. Do therefore, it seems good to you for all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my Lord, the king, but you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? And the king said to him, why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided you and Ziba shall divide the land. Now, David, at this point, I'm sure is kind of frustrated. Like he's heard Ziba's story. Ziba came out to him and he said, my Lord, Mephibosheth is back in Jerusalem. He's trying to overthrow you. He wants the kingdom to be returned to his family, Saul and Jonathan. And David said, okay, Ziba, take all of his stuff. And now Mephibosheth is coming and he says, oh, no, 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 Ziba, he deceived you. And I was sitting there and I was loyal to you. And David's like, all right, you know what? I've given half it to him and half of it to him. I'm just gonna say, you guys take half. You both get it. That's what he does. I don't know if that's what his heart and posture towards it. I can just imagine him. He says, why speak any more of your affairs? I've had it with this, guys. Half. And the final character we see interact with is Barzillai. This was a man who had helped David in Mahanaim. He was listed as one of the leaders who provided for David when he was fleeing Absalom. He's listed as one of those guys who provided all these kind of uh, provisions for him. Beds, basins, pottery, wheat, barley, flour, Grain, beans, lentils, honey, cheese, curds, goats, sheep, delicious stuff. They thought, okay, David has been fleeing. He's in the wilderness. He must be hungry and thirsty. And out of their own kindness and generosity, they provided for him. And David wants to repay Barzillai for this kindness, for his generosity. But he's an old man. And Barzillai says this. When David, excuse me, the king says to him, come over with me and I will provide for you in Jerusalem. But Barzillai said to the king, how many years have I to live that I should go up with to the king to Jerusalem? I heard one, one pastor say, you know, 70 years for us is kind of how we're expected to live. And anything after 70 is a gift. So this guy's 80 years old. And he's saying, all right, at this point, I'm not going to go with you, man. I want to die in my own house. How many years have I still to live that I should go with the king to Jerusalem? Am I not this day 80? Can I discern what's pleasant and what is not? Oh. Can, I, can I taste what I eat and drink? Can I listen to the voice of singing men and singing women? Like your taste buds, his hearing is going out. He's like, it doesn't really do me any good to go with you and just let me die in my own house. Why should your servant be an added burden to my Lord, the King? Your servant will go a little way over the Jordan with you, but why should the King repay me with such a reward? Please let your servant return that I might die in my own city near the grave of my father and my mother. But here is your servant, Shimham. Let him go over with my lord, the king, and do for him whatever seems good to you. And the king answered, Shimham shall go with me, and I will do for him whatever seems good to you. And all that you desire of me, I will do for you. Then all the people went over the Jordan, and the king went over. And the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him, and he returned to his own home. And the king went on, and Shimham went on with him. 
and all the people of Judah, and this is important here, and also half of the people of Israel brought the king on his way. Notice that? Half of the people of Israel. And we come to the final scene, seventh scene. Ends in fighting. So all the men of Israel came to the king and said, why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men with him? And the men of Judah answered, the men of Judah, because the king is our close relative. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at our, the king's expense? Or has he taken, has he given us any gift? It's like David has not given us any tax breaks because we're part of the same tribe. He's not given us a little portion of, not given us gifts. He's not treating us with favoritism. He hasn't fed us with the tribute or given us gifts. And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, we have 10 shares in the king. And in David also, we have more than you. Why then did you despise us? Were we not the first to bring back the king? So Israel's 12 tribes and there's 10 tribes up north and two tribes down south, Judah and Simeon. And all these other tribes, there's like, we have 10 shares. We have 10, 10 shares in the king. And in David also, we have more than you. So they're feeling like underrepresented. They're feeling slighted. We have more shares in the king than you. And Israel was also the first to go and speak with David, speak of returning, bringing David back as king. But look at how verse 43 ends. But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. The argument goes back and forth, but the people of Judah spoke even more harshly. Their words were harsher. Now, you don't have to be a mental health therapist you don't have to be a marriage and family counselor. You don't have to be an interpersonal relational coach to know that when you win arguments with fierceness and harshness, it doesn't lead to flourishing and unity and intimacy. Relationships don't flourish. Unity is not cultivated and protected when the arguments are won with who is the fiercest, who's the most aggressive, who's the loudest. Who can speak even more harshly? Who can be even more forceful? Who can be even more insulting? This tension grows, and this, you're starting to see the kingdom splinter, eventually leading to a division in the north and the south where the kingdom is torn in two. In the middle of the story, we have evidences of grace, evidences of kindness, blessing, pardon, Barzillai and Shimei, the victory of David over Absalom, but it was overshadowed with tragedy. Even David's return as king to Jerusalem, the tribes are fighting over who should take the lead in bringing him back. The kingdom won't ever be the same as it once was. The return of the King David is not, it hasn't united the people. The kingdom has not been renewed. The kingdom will not be restored to its former glory and David is going to be unable to accomplish a renewed kingdom. As we see this story, I think in many ways we can see that Things haven't really changed much throughout the decades and centuries and generations. People are still divided, rallying behind causes and platforms that promote their own self-interests. And those who win the arguments are those who are the most fierce and harsh. It's painful sometimes listening to debates, isn't it? Like who can be the most insulting? We're divided. And most often our response is not, let me humble myself. Let me listen to what they have to say. Let me seek to understand. Let me seek to be quick to listen and slow to speak. Oh, you know, we don't do that. 
What we're going to do? We're going to assume attentions, intentions. We're going to attack and we're going to destroy. And that's how we're going to win. And yet, we simultaneously have this desire, this longing for justice, for peace, for order, for stability. The story in human history shows that until the true king comes, we will be divided. We will win arguments and seek to win in harsh manners. Every attempt to establish peace and unity, no matter how admirable it will be, will not work. Our hearts break as we hear stories of what's happening in our world, such as the war in Ukraine. We can develop mantras and slogans and initiatives, peace in Ukraine, right? So we did for a long time, peace in the Middle East. Every leader, every initiative, every movement will fall short apart from the hope and the promise and the coming kingdom of King Jesus. I think our story in 2 Samuel 19 shows us this causes it, cultivates this longing that we have for a renewed kingdom of peace and justice. And as we read the story of the return of King David and all the ways it falls short, it cultivates this hope, this anticipation for the return of King Jesus. And in some ways, David does reflect the heart of King Jesus. Like Shimei, those who humble themselves, those who fall at the feet of the king, those who admit their sin will find mercy and forgiveness. All those who come to King Jesus longing for mercy will receive it. All those coming to Jesus asking for grace and forgiveness of sin will receive it. We read the story and we think, how could a guy like Shimei, he's kicking dust, he's throwing rocks, he's insulting, be forgiven? And you're sitting there thinking, how could, how could I, in all the ways I've sinned against God, kicked dust at him, thrown rocks at him, is that, is, is that really, is it that good? Certainly I have to do something. I have to clothe myself and, oh, I'm sorry I am. And I'll never do that again, God. And I have to kind of try to beat myself up. It says, come to him. All those who confess their sins will be forgiven. The traitor and the rebel will not be killed if they come to Jesus and ask for mercy. They will find it. All those who confess their sins and ask Jesus for grace will receive it. In other ways, King David falls short of King Jesus, doesn't he? Jesus has promised a complete renewal when he has returned as king, a perfect peace, a kingdom of justice, fighting ceased, sin no more. And, and as the church, we live in this time where we know the kingdom has come. Jesus has come. King Jesus has come. The, the king that David pointed to from the lineage of David, he has come, but he hasn't returned in the same sense. Theologians will call this the, the already but not yet aspect of the kingdom. <coughs> Jesus has inaugurated the kingdom, but the full realization of that kingdom where sin is got taken, taken out, all rights are wronged, peace is established, that hasn't happened yet. We live in this tension. And Jesus, when he began his ministry, began by this in the gospel according to Mark. The time is at hand. The kingdom of God has drawn near. Repent and believe the gospel. Believe the good news. Jesus inaugurated the kingdom. It says, here, I'm bringing it to myself. I'm ruling and reigning over all things, yet all the promises that Jesus has made are not yet realized, hasn't yet come to pass. So as we wait for the return of King Jesus, 
We don't do so in a kind of worrying, fearful, <laughs> I'm reading the news, I'm, I'm reading Facebook and all my news apps and Twitter, and I'm just getting overwhelmed with fear. And I'm hearing these voices of, oh, things are just so bad. Never in history have things been this bad. And I'm like, oh gosh, we got to do something. What are we going to do? Just, we're kind of whipped up in this frenzy. We're just living in fear. No, no, no. But as we wait for the turn of the king, it also doesn't mean that we kind of sit back on our couches and be like, yep, world's going to burn. <laughs> Suckers. <laughs> we get to live in the present by showing what the kingdom of God is like and what it will be like. When Jesus prayed, as it's now known as the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is praying that the kingdom, the realized, established kingdom where God rules and reigns would be present in the life, in our life now. Would your rule and reign be seen in the earth just as it is in heaven? That's what Jesus is praying. So in line with that of our King Jesus, he's, he's come and he's going to come again. And we're in this already, but not yet. We want people to get a picture of what the kingdom is like by the way that we live now. Does that make sense? Yes, we want to give people a picture of what life will look like when King Jesus returns, the return of the king, the true king, by the way we live now. I wanted to end with two ways that we can live now that reflect the kingdom of heaven in the present. And as a, you know, I... I Preachers that like to have two things that have the same letters and, you know, just something that we like. We're not taught that. It just, just want to, it's like, it, when that happens, we're like, oh, it's complete. <laughs> Grace and gentleness. Grace. Grace, you can think of as initiating kindness. It's not conditional. It's not waiting. It's not passive. It's active. So it's not coming into the room and you're like, oh, Okay, I mean, I'll just kind of stick to myself and I'll respond in kindness when someone is kind to me, but I'm not going to go out of my way to show kindness to them. No, that's not grace. Because I'm coming into the room and regardless of your posture towards me, I'm going to be kind to you. And I'm going to come up to you and say, how are you doing? I want to be gracious to you. I want to be interested. I want to initiate. Uh, it's going to be active. And as we live in a fallen, broken world, we don't become overwhelmed by the evil. We seek to overwhelm the evil with the good. Overcome evil with good. In the world that is, where people want to be first, they want to be successful, they want to use their authority to rule over people, say, no, 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 no. Those in the kingdom, we're actually opposite of that. We want to be last. We want to be servants. We want to use our authority to serve. Jesus says, in the kingdom, the first shall be last. Those that are great in the kingdom are not going to be those who are like, hey, look at how great I am. Look at how I'm first. I'm the best. I'm successful. The greatest in the kingdom are going to be the one who says, no, I'm going to be the first to serve. Initiating grace looks like taking the lead and serving others. Judah and Israel, they were fighting about it. <laughs> Who's going to take the lead in bringing the king back? It's ridiculous. In humility, either party could have been, brother, you, you take the lead. We're just happy that the king's back. <laughs> we're just excited to have David reign as king again. It doesn't matter who's first. They don't do that. They're fighting we should be the ones. We have 10 shares. No, no, no. We should be the ones. We, he's from our flesh and blood. Ah. 
or we have a competition not to be the first in the potluck line. Who's going to be the last? That's the competition in the kingdom. Who's going to be the last? Who's going to let everyone else go before them? Amen? <laughs> and everyone's at, different, everyone's at different journeys of maturity, right? <laughs> Initiating kindness not only looks like taking the lead in serving others, it, I think it looks like taking the lead in honoring. You guys familiar with this? Romans 12, outdo one another in showing honor. You ever seen that? You ever seen that played out? So I say, I don't need to walk around and say, oh, man, look at, it. Look at this nice shirt. I just got my hair cut, my beard's trimmed. I'm looking nice. Amen. Honor me. <laughs> we have to walk around kind of self-deprecating ourselves so people will throw us compliments. Oh, man, just such a bad, just so ugly. God, just such a bad hair day. You're just fishing for compliments. Scriptures say, honor one another above yourselves. I like the way the Christian Center Bible says it. Take the lead in honoring one another. It's like, I'm not going to wait around for someone to honor me. I'm going to honor you. And then you're saying, oh, Thomas, you want to honor me? No, 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 no. I'm going to honor you. And it, becomes, it can become kind of like this cool, like, uh, you know, like when people are dating. It's like, okay, let's hang up. No, you hang up. No, you hang up. Okay, one, two, three. Okay, you didn't hang up. No, 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 you hang up. It, it, it becomes this, no, 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 I'm going to show you honor. No, no, you're going to honor me. I'm going to honor you. Initiating grace in service and in honor, in actions and in words. So graciousness, grace, also looks like gentleness. In a world of harshness and where the, the ones who are the most fierce win the arguments, those in the kingdom win by being the most gentle. We demonstrate the kingdom in our grace and our gentleness. We reflect the ways that Jesus has treated us. He hasn't been harsh. He hasn't been fierce. He has been gentle and lowly towards us. We want to be gentle towards others. Philippians 4, 5 says this, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Let everyone see that, that you are considerate in all that you do, one translation says. Another say, let your graciousness be known to everyone. But I like how NIV, New King James, and New American Standard Bibles say it like this. Let your gentleness be evident to all. Like, be known by your gentleness. Is that a commitment you have? Where the argument was won between Judah and Israel. Who was the fiercest? Who was the most harsh? Those in the kingdom of Jesus seek to be the most gentle. We want everyone to know our gentleness. That's a serious commitment to gentleness. Everyone to know. We see the kingdom of David is, is not renewed and splintered and we long for the kingdom of Jesus. We long for the return of the two, true king. Amen? And as we wait for the return of the true king Jesus to right every wrong, we get to live in the present world as if the world that is to come is invading that current world. We want the kingdom to be realized now in the way that we live. We want to demonstrate the unique nature of what it means to be under the rule and reign of King Jesus. And this can look like a commitment to graciousness, taking the lead in serving, taking the lead in honoring, and it can look like a commitment to gentleness. It's not because we can muster it up in ourselves, but because Jesus has shown this to us and we get now to reflect this same way that he's treated us to others. Amen? Let's pray. Father, as the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, 
we thank you that you have given us strength. You have judged us faithful, righteous. You have appointed us to your service. Formerly, we were blasphemers. We were rebels. We were an insolent opponent of you. Yet you receive mer- we receive mercy, even though we acted ignorantly in our unbelief. And the grace of our Lord Jesus overflowed for us with love and faith that are in Christ Jesus. We believe that this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom we are the foremost. And we receive mercy for this reason, that in us, Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. Father, would you cause us to be examples of your kindness and your mercy? Would the way that we interact in our home, in our workplace, in our church, in our community, would that reflect the values and the heart of our King? Remove from us the former way of relating, of functioning, of living in which we want to be the best. We want to be at the top. We're arguing with, our, with each other about who's going to be closer to Jesus in power. And Jesus, you come to us and you say, no, no, no. Those who want to be great become like servants. Father, I'm convinced that this vision of life is compelling. That this radical, unique nature of life in the kingdom is totally different than the kingdom of the world. when we respond in grace and gentleness versus harshness, our hearts are changed. Lord, thank you that you have responded to us in this way. You have invited us into a relationship with you that that you share your very heart with us, that you say you are gentle and lowly. And Father, as we know your heart more, as we receive and feel and experience your heart for us, your love for us, would that change our hearts in the way that we relate to others? Father, I know how quickly my words can become harsh and fierce. I don't get what I want, I respond in anger. I belittle, I disrespect, I withdraw, I avoid. Forgive us, Father, for responding out of line with your heart. Create in us a heart that is more in line with you. Thank you that this world is not all that there is. We see division. Republicans, Democrats. Black lives matter, blue lives matter. All kinds of divisions we can categorize ourselves in. That fuels conflict and hate. Father, help us to be ambassadors of peace. Help us to come alongside each other as we're fighting with our spouses and our kids to encourage, to bring comfort. Help us to be peacemakers. Help us to bring the kingdom into our workplace and our family and our community.
we do want to see your kingdom come. We do want your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we ask for your grace and your help in this, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.